Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Happy New Year, if no one's told you that yet. And if you have not met me yet, my name is Jason Faber, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. We're thankful that the Lord has brought you here to worship with us. All right, let me draw your attention now to the Word of the Lord as we find it in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 14. We are continuing our study through the I Am Sayings of Jesus in John's Gospel. We have this one this week, one more next week, and then we'll jump back into Genesis. I know we're all excited for that. But we're going to be focusing particularly on verse 6 this morning. As a matter of fact, the sermon will dwell exclusively there, but I want to read verses 1 through 7 so we have a bit of the context into which Jesus makes this statement to his disciples in the upper room. Before I read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, as always, brothers and sisters, I remind you that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God, so let us attend to it as such. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you To myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways. And your thoughts than our thoughts. And so we humbly acknowledge together that we are incapable of rightly understanding your word unless your spirit illumines our hearts and our minds. Therefore we pray that you would use your word that goes forth from your mouth so that it would not return to you empty. But that it would accomplish that which you purpose and succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Do this in our midst now, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if I'm the only one, but as we head into a new year, we're two days in, right, to the year of our Lord, 2022, I face the new year with a lot of uncertainty. And with uncertainty, as human beings Usually accompanying that is fear, right? As we think about uncertainty of the future, our hearts can be troubled, can't they? 
And in the wake of how tumultuous 2020 and 2021 were, we wonder to ourselves, at least I do, what in the world does 2022 have in store for us? And so maybe you're sitting there this morning wondering to yourself, politically what's going to happen in 2022? We sure don't seem to be heading in a very good direction. And there seems to be a power grab as COVID rips across the nation and now we have a new variant. And so what are going to be the political and life of our nation ramifications of that? It hasn't been fun thus far, has it? Are they going to bring back lockdowns? There's uncertainty politically, uncertainty for us as a nation. Maybe you're wondering financially what 2022 is going to look like. Boy, the last two years were really tough. What is 2022 going to look like? Am I still going to have a job? Or maybe you're wondering relationally. I've got this relationship with a coworker or a family member or a friend, and it's strained. Is that relationship going to end? Maybe I want it to end. Do I have to endure it for another year? Or maybe you think about your physical health or the physical health of someone you love. There's been a bad diagnosis, cancer, some other disease, and you're wondering, am I going to make it to see 2023? Am I going to make it through this year? Are they going to make it through this year? What kind of suffering awaits me? And the reason I bring this up is because this is the kind of situation that the disciples are facing in the upper room. They're facing a lot of uncertainties, but there's a lot of bad things that are coming down the pike for them, and so they're troubled in heart. And just by way of giving you a little bit of context that leads up to chapter 14, let me remind you of a few of the the things, the circumstances and situations, the bad news that they've been informed about by Jesus. In chapter 12 of John's gospel, Jesus has told them that he himself is troubled in heart. His spirit is troubled. Why? Because he knows that the time is drawing near for him to lay down his life and pay the ultimate sacrifice sacrifice himself under the wrath of God for all the sins of the elect, whoever had been, ever were, or ever would be. And so Jesus is troubled, and he's telling them, I'm going to have to leave you. And then in chapter 13 of John's gospel, he says, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, who the disciples saw as the strongest among them, Jesus says, he's going to deny me three times. So you can imagine the situation of the disciples, can't you? Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And it's not been easy. And just when things were starting to look pretty good, hey, I think this guy's the Messiah. He's going to usher in the golden age of Israel that we've been waiting for. Now you're saying that there's going to be mutiny, betrayal, denial, and you're going to leave? What is going on? And so Jesus, knowing that they're troubled in heart in light of all this news, comforts them. He encourages them. And how does he do that? He does that by saying, listen, I know that there are a lot of uncertainties right now, but let me remind you of what is certain. You want to know what's certain? Who I am 
and what I have come to do for you. So in the midst of their uncertainties, Jesus says, let's focus on what is certain. And what is certain is who I am and what I've come to do for you. That's why Jesus says in verse 6 that he is the way and the truth and the life. He's revealing to them who he is and what he has come to do for them. And the fact that they need to focus on that certainty in the midst of all these tumultuous times and uncertainties that they're experiencing. That is what will calm their fearful and troubled hearts. And brothers and sisters, as we head into a new year, we need to hear the exact same thing. We need to be reminded that our focus is to be on the certainty of who our Savior is and what He has come to do. And we're just barely going to scratch the surface on this one verse. But I pray that it would encourage all of us to that end as we look at these three points, that Jesus is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. Because we're going to find that in these realities, in Jesus Himself, we have everything that we need to face the uncertainties of life. So may the Lord use his word to that end this morning. Look first with me at how Jesus is the way in verse 6. Let me read that for you. Jesus said to him, that is to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we need to slow down here and pause before we jump into this verse, because as Jesus makes these claims about himself, we need to understand that these are not new concepts in John's gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because each one of these statements, these claims that Jesus makes about who he is and what he's come to do, have already been referenced, every single one of them, in John's prologue. In John chapter 1. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn to John chapter 1. And look with me first as we think about Jesus as the way. Look at verse 14 of John chapter 1. John says of the word of God. The son of God. The second person of the Trinity. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what John is saying about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is God, is that he has assumed a human nature, body and soul, with all of its experiences save sin. And why has he done this? Why has God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, assumed a human nature, taken on flesh? He's done this so that he can be the way. The way back to God. Now, as we think about that, and this is claim of Jesus that I am the way, we have to ask the question, well, why do we need a way back to God? Why do we need Jesus to be the way for us? Why do we need God to come in the flesh to be the way back to God? And we have to answer that question. And the answer to it is, well, we weren't created that way, were we? 
We were created with access to God, fellowship and communion with Him. We saw that already in Genesis chapter 1 as we've begun to work through that book. Adam and Eve had direct access to God. Adam was, and these concepts are important, his own prophet, priest, and king. Immediately in the presence of God. He didn't need someone to mediate between him and God because there was no enmity between him and God. So man didn't need a way in the beginning. He was able to be, because of how God had made him, in his own image, his own way as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And I'm going to define what that means exactly. But we had direct access to God. Here's the problem. What happens when Adam and Eve sin and eat of the fruit of the tree that God told them not to? They're kicked out of the presence of God. They no longer have immediate access to Him. The wrath of God is now upon them, and they're kicked out of His presence. And so now, what is the need? The need is for a way back to God. And the way that God provides a way is through the way of a mediator. The way of a go-between God and man. And we see little faint glimpses of this all throughout Genesis. But one of the clearest that I think is there that highlights this need for a mediator between God and man is actually in Genesis chapter 28. Don't ask me how long it'll take us to get to Genesis chapter 28 as we go through that study. But let me give you a little preview. I'm sure you remember Jacob is sleeping. And he has this vision in Genesis chapter 28. And the heavens open up and there is the Lord speaking to Jacob and saying, I've entered into this gracious covenant with Abraham and your father Isaac. And now, Jacob, I'm going to enter into this covenant relationship with you. And do you remember what stands between the heavens where the Lord is and the earth where Jacob is in this vision? There's a ladder, isn't there? And we're told in Genesis 28 that angels are ascending and descending. They're going up and down this ladder in Jacob's vision. And what we're being shown is that there is a need for a mediator. There's a need for a bridge between God and man because of this separation As a result of sin. And you know what's absolutely breathtaking? Jesus, when he comes on the scene, when the word who has become flesh begins his earthly ministry and calls disciples to himself, do you know what he tells Nathanael in John chapter 1? First of all, he tells Nathanael, hey, I knew where you were while you were praying this morning. And Nathanael's like, this guy's the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm going to show you greater things than that. You know what you're going to see, Nathaniel? You are going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're going to see angels descending and ascending upon me. You see the claim that Jesus is making? He's saying, you know that bridge between God and man, that mediator that is needed? That's me. I've come to be that mediator, to bring you back to God. Because you see, it's only God himself who can bring us back to God. And Jesus is God in the flesh. And so that's why, again and again throughout the New Testament, we're told that there's only one way back to God, isn't there? 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. And you see, this was pictured for us again and again all throughout the Old Testament, not just in Genesis 28 with Jacob's ladder, but in the Lord's provision of priests. Right? We lost that priestly role in the fall, and so the Lord provides priests all throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And what do they do? They offer animal sacrifices in order to atone for your sin. Blood must be shed. And the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, as a representative for the people, because that's what a priest does. The role of a priest is to represent the people of God before God, and they must have a mediator. And that's the role that the priest played. And so you remember that vest or ephod that the priests wore? Do you remember what was on it? Those 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the priest is representatively entering into the very presence of God, representing the people with the blood sacrifice. But you see, all of those priests under the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant were just types and shadows of Jesus, who is our great high priest, who doesn't offer the blood of goats and rams or bulls, he offers his own blood once and for all. That's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. And it's why we don't have priests anymore. Because he presents himself as the sacrifice. He is that priest. And after he died, he rose from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand, and presented himself as that pleasing sacrifice with which the Father is pleased. And he intercedes for us even now. You see, we couldn't ascend to God. That's the whole point of Jacob's ladder as well. God descends and condescends to us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. What is that new and living way? That he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So you see, by saying that he is the way, the word made flesh, Jesus is saying, I am the priest who has come to give you access to God that you lost in the fall. And so now I bring you near. So do you see the problem of fallen man that Jesus as the way, as the priest addresses here? It's our guilt and it's our separation from God. We have guilt in Adam that's been imputed to us. We have our own personal guilt from the sins that we commit against the Lord. And for these, we deserve his wrath and eternal separation from him. And yet, what happens on the cross? Jesus takes that penalty in full. 
and pays it. He's cut off. He experiences the wrath of God that we deserve. And he fulfills all righteousness in his life. So that his perfect righteousness is now counted as our own. So we're declared forgiven. We're declared righteous because Jesus is our high priest. Our consciences, our hearts are cleansed. And then we're brought near to him. Through him. We're brought back to God through Jesus. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Isn't that what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3? Brothers and sisters, this is true of us because Jesus is the way. Our great high priest. And so do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying disciples. And he's saying sovereign grace this morning. In the face of the uncertainties that lay before you, not just in 2022, but the rest of your lives. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your focus ultimately be there. Let your focus be on me. The word who has become flesh. To be the way back to God for you. Here's what's amazing. Jesus is both the way and the destination, isn't he? <laughs> The only way back to God is through God. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the destination. And so focus on this certainty. That because of who I am, which is certain, and because of what I've done for you, you dwell with God in the love of God through me. That should bring great comfort to us. Jesus intended that to bring great comfort to the disciples. So the first thing that we see that we need to know in the uncertainties of life is the certainty of who Jesus is, that he is the way. He is our priest. He's dealt with our guilt and separation from God and brought us back to God so that we have fellowship and communion with the triune Lord. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, secondly, that he's not only the way, secondly, he says he is the truth. Let me read verse 6 of John 14 for you again. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now again, as we look at this second statement of Jesus, that he is the truth, we need to go back to the prologue. Because again, this isn't a new concept. This isn't a new idea. John says, again, hopefully your finger is still there, in John chapter 1 verse 14, He says this about the Word of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now listen to this, full of grace and truth. So what is John saying about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God? That He is, along with the Father and the Spirit... Since he is God, the truth. God in his essence, we know this, is truth. And since Jesus is God, he is the truth as well. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? They don't learn things. God doesn't learn things. He doesn't gather truth from some outside of him source of truth. No, he in his essence is truth itself and the source of all truth. And so Jesus is saying that about himself. 
John first says it about the Son of God, the Word of God in the prologue. And Jesus says, I am aware that that is true of me. I am the truth. And here's the incredible thing. The truth has now taken on flesh and dwelt among you. So that everything that I say now, everything that I say to you is true. And you can know it's true because I am the truth. John says a little bit later in his prologue, in John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Tap into your catechism here a little bit. Why can't you see God? Because he's spirit. But the only God, the Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Word has become flesh. And made the Father known to such an extent that he can say to Thomas in John chapter 14 verse 9, If you have seen me, Thomas, you have seen the Father. Because I and the Father are one. Now, again, we've already established that Jesus comes, the Son of God comes in the flesh to be our mediator. We've seen first he comes to fulfill the office of priest. And second, what we see here, that since Jesus is the truth, and the word has, the truth itself has become flesh, he fulfills this role of prophet for us. This role of speaking God's word to us. So let's think about the role of a priest is to represent the people to God. The role of a prophet, if you will, is to represent God to the people. To receive the word of God, the revelation of God, and then make that known to the people of God. Who's the first example in the Old Testament that comes to mind for you? For me, it's Moses. You remember Moses' role. The people of Israel are in captivity to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians and Pharaoh, they are cruel taskmasters, aren't they? Just absolutely cruel. And so the Israelites are crying out to God. And God hears their cries, and he calls Moses and says, I want you to go, and I'm going to give you these signs. You can turn your staff into a snake. You can stick your hand in your cloak and pull your hand out, and as leprosy, stick it in again. These will all be signs to those who hear the word that you are actually carrying my word. They validate that the word that you speak is actually my word, because only God could do those miracles. And so God says, go and speak my word to Pharaoh and to my people Israel. And obviously, we all know the story. Moses is very hesitant. I'm slow of tongue. I can't do it, Lord. So the Lord graciously allows Aaron to be that mouthpiece as well. But Moses brings the word of God to the people of God. That's his role as a prophet. Here's what's fascinating. The Lord reveals to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, That a greater prophet is yet to come. A prophet who's like Moses and that he speaks the word of God, but a prophet who will be greater than Moses. The Lord revealed this to Moses, and then Moses revealed this to the Israelites. Let me read that for you. Deuteronomy 18, 18. The Lord says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So what do we have here? We have this promise that a greater prophet than Moses is coming. The same idea that we get in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. The servant of the Lord 
will be the prophet of the Lord and he will speak good news to God's people. And so then what happens? Jesus comes on the scene and he is that prophet, isn't he? And we know he's that prophet with crystal clarity because of places like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, here's a little homework assignment. You can go later and look at the first few verses there of Hebrews chapter 1 and see that you have all three mediatorial offices there, the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. But let's just look first at the prophetic office that Jesus fulfills here. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, perhaps you have this memorized after all the time we spent in it as a church together. But the author writes, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., etc. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus. The Word made flesh has now come, and God has spoken through him. He is the prophet unlike any other prophet before him. Why? Because he does not just speak the word of God. He is the word of God in the flesh who has drawn near to make the Father known to us. He is the prophet par excellence that all the other Old Covenant, Old Testament prophets were but types And shadows, Jesus, the Son who has assumed a human nature, is that reality. And why has the truth taken on flesh? Why has Jesus assumed this role of prophet? Because I think you know this, after the fall, we're plunged into ignorance and a hatred of the truth, aren't we? Ever since Adam and Eve believed that first lie hissed at them by the serpent, we've given up on the truth and we've given ourselves over to ignorance and to lies. And so that's why the Word, the truth of God, becomes flesh and fulfills this prophetic office for us. Not just to reveal the truth to us, Oh, yes, Jesus does that. But then also to change our darkened, ignorant hearts that, as Paul says in Romans 1, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He comes and gives us new life by His Holy Spirit and regenerates us so that we now love the truth. We don't just know it. We don't just understand it, but we love the one who is truth itself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I hope that's why you're here this morning, to learn more about him, why you read his word, why you pray, why you do all that you do is to know him more. That is not natural to us ever since the fall. It is supernatural by God's grace. And Jesus, as our prophet, in sending the Holy Spirit to do that, has brought that about in us, brothers and sisters. So that what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, is true of us, that we know the truth, and it sets us free. Jesus has revealed himself and the Father to us, as he says he will in Matthew 11, verse 27. 
And so this is our great privilege, brothers and sisters, to know the truth. And in a very real sense, because Jesus is ours, to possess the truth. How amazing is that? Jesus, in giving us himself, has given us the truth so that we're no longer in bondage to darkness and ignorance, but we know the truth and he has set us free. We need to rejoice in this. I mean, don't you sometimes go about your day and you interact with unbelievers and you look at everything that's going on and you know what's going on in the lives of unbelievers around you and you think to yourself, how do you make it through one hour without knowing that God is for you in the midst of this crazy world? How do you make it through one day without depending upon Him? And I don't ask that question in a prideful way. I'm humbled at that because I know that's where I once was and where you once were. But praise be to God, by His grace, we now live in dependence upon Him and entrust ourselves to Him and we know the truth about the great end for which all things exist and why we exist and what God is up to. And that brings peace to our troubled hearts. And so we should be on our faces praying for those unbelievers. That even as the Lord brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, that they would do that in the lives of the unbelievers around us. And that he'd give us opportunities to be able to share that truth about who Jesus is and what he's come to do with them. But do you see how, again, this would be a comfort to the disciples in the face of the uncertainties that lay before them. Here's what's certain. You have the truth. Because you have me. That's why I've come. Sovereign grace, rest in that reality. As you face the year before you, the uncertainties before you, the truth has come in the flesh. And by grace through faith, he's given himself to you. And you love him. And he loves you. What more do you need? Cast your gaze upon him. Not all the uncertainties. Because that will still your troubled heart. So we've seen that Jesus is our priest as the way. Jesus is our prophet as the truth. Thirdly, let's look at how Jesus is the life. Let me read verse 6 for you again. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I think I've trained you. You know where we're going to go, right? We're going to go back to the prologue because, again, John already has said this about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Look at John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 with me. John writes of the Son, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. You see what John is saying about the Word, about the Son of God? He's saying, along with the Father, He is life itself in His essence. He is the very principle of life. God is not dependent upon His life from anyone or anything. He is life. Anything that has existence, 
Anything that has life has that existence, has that life as its source from God Himself. And since that's true of God, that is true of the Son of God. That is true of Jesus as the Son of God. He is life itself in His very essence. And so what does this reveal to us? Jesus is the life is what he says. And this should be an easy one for you. I've already told you what the three mediatorial offices, what the threefold office is, prophet, priest. What's the last one? He's our king. He's our life-giving king. And we know that the Lord, under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, provided kings for his people, didn't he? Who's the greatest king of all? When I say the king of Israel, the king of God's people, who do you think of first? King David, right? The man after God's own heart. Did you know that the Lord made a promise to David? We call it the Davidic covenant, if you will. He made a promise to David that there will be an offspring from your line who will rule and reign over the house of God forever. He will forever be king. We find that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Let me read that for you. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. The Lord says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers after you've died, in other words, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now, we know this promise is partially fulfilled by David's offspring, Solomon in particular. But it finds its ultimate fulfillment in David's offspring, who? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is this promised king. And how do we know that? We know that because the angel Gabriel, in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, when he comes to Mary and announces to her that she is going to bear the very Son of God, what does he say? He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Who is this David's greater son? It is the one who is life itself, who has come in the flesh to be our king. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And why has he come? What need of ours as fallen mankind does he address here as our king? Well, he brings life where there is death. Because you see, in our fallen state, we're in bondage to sin and death. We sin. It comes, if you will, naturally to us in our fallen state. There's nothing more unnatural than sin, according to our human nature. But now that we're fallen in Adam, we sin. And we're slaves to it. We're in bondage to it. And what are the wages of sin? It's death. 
And so who was our king in our fallen state? The flesh, the world, and the devil. And they dragged us around with their chains to our great end, our terrible end. The wrath of God in hell for all eternity. That's where we were headed. And yet in His grace and His mercy, the Son, who is life itself, condescends and comes as our King and breaks those chains, breaks that bondage by tasting death on the cross for us so that we never will. And He frees us and He says, you now belong to me. I've bought you at the price of my blood. And so you will serve me all of your days. And so now we don't know bondage to sin and death anymore. We now know freedom in walking in obedience with God's commands consistently, progressively, all the days of our lives. Understanding that these are the paths of life. Even as the flesh and the world and the devil continue to tempt us and make appeals to the flesh that remains within us. Like the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs, saying, come and I'll show you pleasures and I'll give you life. Where does her house lead? It leads to death. And we know that now. And so we want to live in submission to our king and live in submission to his law because he's given us life. And we know that this is true life, living in accord with our human nature, in accord with God's law. And so, brothers and sisters, we should rejoice at this, that we've been freed from sin and death, and now Jesus is our conquering King who gives us life. And he says this is why he has come multiple times in John's gospel. Let me just point out two for you. In John 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus says elsewhere in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, this is ours because King Jesus has freed us from our bondage and slavery. And we now belong to him. And amazingly, he is ours. Life itself is now ours. And so we rejoice in our king. We rejoice in our prophet. We rejoice in our priest. Do you see what an encouragement this is? In the face of uncertainties, as our lives are riddled with so many unknowns that provoke fear in us and cause us to be troubled in heart, Jesus draws near to his disciples. He draws near to us this morning in his preached word and he says, the most important things for you are certain because you are on the way because you have faith in me. Jesus tells Thomas, no, you do know these things, Thomas. We tend to forget the most important things that we know for certain when we're rattled, don't we? And yet Jesus is here reminding his disciples and he's reminding you all, you know the truth. You know who I am. You know what I've come to do for you. I've accomplished your salvation. 
I am God and man. And by grace through faith, you have been saved and you dwell with God in the love of God. And because you have me, you have all truth and life. What more do you need? Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus isn't being an unsympathetic high priest slapping you around saying, snap out of it and toughen up. That's not what he's doing here. Jesus knows the uncertainties of life are difficult. He's not saying to deny them. He's not saying to turn a blind eye to them. But what he is saying is that the only way we can put the uncertainties of life into their proper perspective and not be so troubled in heart that we give in to sinning is by beholding Him. The Word made flesh. Beholding our Savior for who He truly is and what He's done. Jesus is saying, I know all these uncertainties in your life don't make sense to you right now. But you can trust me. If I am who I say I am, and I am, you can know it with certainty. You can trust me. I am God. And I am the only way to God. I am the truth. And I will never lead you into lies. I am the life. And I will never abandon you to death. Because you see, brothers and sisters, in a world of uncertainties, Jesus, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will never leave us or forsake us. Of that, we can be certain. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a complete Savior we have. We're humbled before the truth of who He is. The Word made flesh and the reality of what He's come to do as our prophet, priest, and king. We confess that our faith is often weak and we lose sight of what is most important. We pray this morning that you would anew, even as we start a new year, turn our gaze upon Jesus in all His glory. That you would increase our faith that even as we suffer, we know that we have a sympathetic high priest who bears those burdens with us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. We pray that we would, with certainty, move forward because of who he is, even in the uncertainties of life, and ultimately carry out what you've left us here to do, making your gospel known here in our city and to the farthest corners of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.